The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Walt Whitman said that the real war will never get into the books. It's such a famous quote that we've used it to introduce this program before. But if Whitman was right, how come we've been talking about Civil War books on this show for 10 years? And didn't Whitman try to get the real war into his own writing? Just what did he really mean? And what about other famous writings on the war, from Sherman's memoirs to Lincoln's speeches to the stories of Ambrose Bierce? We'll explore all of these tonight with Professor Stephen Cushman, author of Belligerent News, Five Northern Writers, and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to the show, Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I'm one of the few people here because it's the end of the semester, but I'm still not the university spokesman, not representing the university, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself. That legal disclaimer, always required, always welcome. Uh, takes a load off to know I'm not speaking for the university and that I'm free to tell you what I actually think. Uh, but we're not here to talk uh, about school. It is the end of the semester. It is quiet. Uh, it's cold here in November 20, 2014. Exams are starting tomorrow. Classes are over. 
it's uh, uh, it has been a, a good fall term academically. I've enjoyed working with the students. Had not much chance to do any writing. Uh, it it has been a typically gruesome term administratively with the continuous cuts and so on. But the university learned today, since I complained too much about uh, bad administrative things, that SACS, the uh, overwhelming uh, bureaucratic accrediting board that has kept the university on double secret probation for a year because we didn't fill out our assessment forms correctly when they visited us, uh, we learned today that we're free. We're done. We have placated the gods of SACS. We are off probation. We are off monitoring. Uh, we can now proceed to focus on teaching research and service for another few years until we must once again scramble to put a bunch of paperwork in order to make it look like we're doing things in a way that non-specialists can comprehend, which is not what we normally waste our time doing. We're too busy with the teaching, research, and service. Uh, until we actually get examined, then we have to put on the show. I didn't say that. If anyone in the dean's office is listening, I'll deny that it's me here in my office tonight. Uh, let's go forward and talk about the 19th century. But before we do that, let's let you know, as always, who's coming up next. It's our last show before the year-end break. So we'll be back live again on January 14th. In the meantime, everybody have a good holiday. Uh, or holidays, or lack of holidays, whatever you do over the midwinter period, solstice and otherwise. When we come back on January 14th, uh, we'll be talking with Larry Babbitts, co-editor of From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. On the 21st of January, 2015, Mark Christ, author of Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State, and not just an author, but a public historian who deals with the war in the Trans-Mississippi and Arkansas extensively, uh, a topic I know nothing about, and I look forward to hearing from him. Uh, still a gap in the schedule on the 28th. I need to fill that in. By the time we get back here, we'll have something lined up. Then February 4th brings us the tale of facial hair in the Civil War, beards of the Civil War. I've talked enough about that in the past. Uh, we'll see what happens when we get there. And then uh, from the, I won't, it would be unfair as well as a cliche to say from the ridiculous to the sublime, but on February 11th, David Reynolds will talk to us about his new edition of the writings of Abraham Lincoln, who did in fact have a beard, and uh, that should be uh, interesting indeed. You can buy that book and any of the other books you hear uh, about on the show, including tonight's, uh, from Amazon.com. And if you go to the link on the impedimentsofwar.org webpage, you can click through there, and that sends some money to Mark Gaffney and his website that keeps us all informed as to what's going on. You can also donate to my personal Christmas fund there. There's a PayPal donation button, which I also use to buy books uh, to read about on the show when publishers are too cheap to send them here. And uh, if they do send them and I don't need to buy books, then of course I buy whatever I want, decorations for the tree, new tires for the car, uh, anything, uh, anything at all. Um, well enough on where we are there. Uh, it is the end of the semester by uh, 
daughter who's attending school up at Chapel Hill had to write a paper on Abraham Lincoln this past semester for her American history class, which she texted me the night before, the usual freshman frantic, you know, I don't know what to say, my, my draft is no good. I resisted the urge to write the paper for her and instead just emailed a chapter from Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Another frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln as a research source. And she turned uh, that uh, that bit of research and her own writing into an A paper, I'm proud to say. Uh, I'm just hoping she doesn't grow up to be a historian because there are, there are more reliable ways to make a living in today's world. Uh, well, enough about that. Let's talk 19th century. Let's get back to belligerent muse. Uh, the author, Stephen Cushman, has an essay in another book, I should point out, uh, called The Gateway to the Confederacy. Uh, He and I both actually have essays in that book, and I was happy to see the Civil War Monitor magazine, which just came out, has an article on the uh, best books of 2014. They asked various people what they thought the best books were, uh, and one of the people they selected not me. They, they asked me, and I didn't pick my own contribution. Uh, too modest to do that. But someone else did pick Gateway to the Confederacy as one of the best books, and I attribute that much more to Professor Cushman's essay than to mine. Uh, uh, but it's a, it is a good book. Uh, at least the, the other essays, I think, are very good and, and highly recommend it to you. Uh, so, Check out this week's or this month's Civil War Monitor magazine. Not a sponsor of the show, just letting you know it's out there. And you can find yet more ways to spend your money on books. Always a good thing. So, we go to Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers, and how they shaped our understanding of the Civil War. The author is the Robert C. Taylor Professor of English at the University of Virginia, Stephen Cushman. Professor Cushman, are you there? I am here. Yes, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here, and I appreciate your inviting me. And congratulations on being freed from Sachs. Oh, it, it's a glorious day here in Greenville. <laughs> uh, if you've ever gone through, it, it, is Sachs your accrediting body there? Oh, yes. We, we know them well. Okay. So so no more to say then. Um, uh Quick question off the top uh, about the Gateway to the Confederacy book. I noticed in your acknowledgments to uh, Belligerent Muse, you mentioned Evan Jones. Yes. Uh, I, he seems like a great guy. He edited, uh, co-edited the, the Gateway to the Confederacy, uh, but I've never met him. Have you met him? Oh, yes. No, I know Evan. He was, uh, he was undergraduate here uh, at University of Virginia, and uh, I have been seeing him regularly at the uh, Huntington Library Civil War Conferences out in San Marino, California, and mm-hmm. he and I correspond regularly. He's, he is a wonderful guy, and uh, he did a very good job, he and Wiley Sword. Yes, yes, I thought they did an outstanding job, and it was a pleasure working with them. Well, this uh, book here, it has been a real treat this week to read the book. As lo- listeners to the show will know that there are some. I, I try to be polite to every guest. There's no point in, in not being so. Uh, but some weeks the book is a little bit more of a chore to read than others. And then uh, some weeks, like this one, it's just a, uh, a delight. And uh, it, it 
I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into when I, I started it. Uh, there have been several people who've written on uh, uh, the literature of uh, the Civil War, the uh, uh, Battlefields Rising. Uh, the yep. author's slipping my mind. He was just on the show. Um, uh, uh, Randall Fuller. Randall Fuller, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, excellent book. Uh, this is, uh, and, and he was on, and we talked about what he had to do. And I, I thought, well, we might get more of the same, sort of looking at specific writings of individuals. Uh, but it looks like you have a larger agenda here. Uh, so let me just start with that. Why, why write this book? Uh, well, I, 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 there are a couple of answers there. One is uh, it's a book that comes out of... Uh, talks and, and essays I've been putting together since 2006. Uh, the, first, the first piece of it was the, the piece on Walt Whitman, and a lot of these things were prepared originally as, as lectures at conferences or as contributions to uh, books such as Gateway to the Confederacy. And as I looked over them, after I had several of them and I looked them over, I realized that that really there is a uh, a set of recurring concerns that are mine and that the essays show and that those concerns constitute an argument about civil war writing and ways that we might want to be reading it ways that that really as far as i can tell very few people read it uh and and so there was on the one hand just it's been something I've been doing for a while, but on the other hand, as as I accumulated the pieces, I began to see there was a, a hole here. W h o l e. Yes. Well, Whitman is maybe a good place to start. There, there are you know readers who get the book will see there's five chapters devoted to these five uh, quite different writers: uh, Lincoln, Whitman, uh, Sherman, Ambrose Bierce, and Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, Whitman, as I said in, in, in the introduction, is famous for saying the real war you know, won't get into the books. And you, you address that quote, uh, pointing out there's different ways to take it. Yes. But uh, how should we take it? Well, I think, I think that the, the way that it gets taken is that, and, and people disagree on whether or not Whitman was right. David Blight says Whitman was wrong. But, but people who, who take the quotation in the spirit with which they think Whitman meant it, it would say that the war had so many complicated, often ugly sides, uh, that no, no book, particularly no book aimed at a, at a genteel, decorous 19th century audience in the United States, could possibly encompass the all the grisly details of everything from his experiences in in the hospitals of Washington to various kinds of atrocities that we would now call war crimes to small touches of of comradeship and so on and and that's a good argument i mean it would be hard to imagine a, a book in the second half of the 19th century getting all those things into it the way that I suggest thinking about it is that you, you, if you shift the emphasis of the quotation from uh, the real war will never get into the books to the real war will never get into the books, 
what it becomes a quotation about, and I think this is useful and productive way to think, is this is a this is a statement, Whitman's is a statement about how we go about the process of writing books that attempt to convey the fullness of the American Civil War. And uh, if you it doesn't it doesn't take very long to realize that any book any of us writes, including including uh, you or me, has got to be very selective and has got to frame and has got to select its evidence and so on and so on and so on. And that very process is, is necessarily going to be a process of excluding some things and including some things. So it's almost, it's almost impossible for the full breadth of the war to get into a book. That said, what I think Whitman, the reason I think he said it was, I think that the next sentence is understood to be, and I'm going to write a book that will try to do it, and here are the, the experiments that I'm going to carry out in different kinds of uh, narrative technique that are going to come a lot closer to the real war than anything else has up to this point, namely 1875. Well, that, I, I think, uh, the idea that, that the whole war can't be encompassed in, in one book or even 100,000 books is... Is sort of axiomatic. No one's really going to argue with that. And the idea that that the war is too too grisly to be captured in books, as you point out, for a decorous nineteenth-century audience. Uh, um, Michael C. C. Adams recently wrote uh, *Living Hell*, that that takes that on directly and tries to remind us today, in a world where we enjoy reenactments, that the real war is a lot worse than that, and yeah. that we should right. never forget it. Uh, but what you focus on are, are Lincoln, not Lincoln's, uh, Whitman's literary experiments. Yeah. And I'm looking at the clock. We're going to have to take a short break. Okay. But I want to come back to that that question. What does Whitman try, and how successful sure. is he in bringing the real war into the books? That's the topic we'll come back to in just a minute. Our guest today is Stephen Cushman. He's the author of Belligerent Minds, Five Northern Writers, and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Stephen Cushman, author of Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. One of those writers was Walt Whitman, famous for saying the real war will never get into the books. And we ended our first segment talking about what Whitman meant by that, and in particular how he tried to get the war into his writing. Uh, Stephen, you say there are, there are two experiments that Whitman undertook that we take that we're so successful, we take them for granted. They appear in everyone's writing today. Yeah, uh, yeah. T- tell us about uh, that. Actually, there. When I in the chapter, I talk about three things that he did. Um, the 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 first one, and, and bear in mind, he's these some of these early pieces are appearing in the New York Times as early as 1863. So he's he's right in the in the midst of things. Uh, one of the first things that he does that that we have come to uh, look for is. He has, he has personalized his writing. He uses the first person a great deal. Uh, there's a certain reliance on the convention of personal presence. Now we read a book like, say, Tony Horowitz's Confederates in the Attic, and, and that's one of the attractive things to us is that Horowitz talks in the, in the first person, and, and it's about his travels and the people he meets, and we think this is, this is great. But history wasn't always written that way. Uh, it certainly wasn't written that way with the assumption that, that everybody would be interested in somebody who was a nobody. Grant can talk in the first person. Sherman can talk in the first person. But why would anybody care about uh, an unnamed nurse working in the hospital? So, so that's that personalizing is one thing. The second thing is uh, as when Whitman is, is thinking about history, and he says this in the, in the memoranda, when he's thinking about history, he is taking issue with narratives by generals. And, and that, of course, is what so much of Civil War writing was in the first wave. Uh, the great memoir bonanza of the late 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the early part of the 20th century, mostly consisted of high-ranking officers, usually general officers, narrating their wars from the top down. What they saw, they narrated downward. Whitman turned this upside down and started to tell the stories of people who were nobodies, people who were private soldiers, people who were civilians working with soldiers. Uh, and and this, this hadn't been done in, in quite the same way. A, uh, a comparison would be with Sam Watkins's Company H, but the difference there is that is that 
Watkins's subtitle is something like the, a sideshow to the big show. <coughs> and right. so Watkins seems to be saying, you know, I'm going to tell you this stuff, and uh, and it's just my own little thing. Now there's some irony there, but but he also I think is trying to issue a kind of disclaimer. Whitman, on the contrary, and this would be the third thing uh, that I think he does, and that now we take for granted. He was insistent that when he told the story about a particular soldier, a particular soldier wounded in the hospitals of Washington whom he encountered, when he told the story of that soldier, that wasn't just a little candid shot. That was, in fact, representative of a whole type of of the war in general. So when you go back to what we were saying at the beginning, it seems axiomatic that no one could get the whole war into a book. Yes, it does, but Whitman's ambition was to tell small stories and then make large claims on the basis of them that they were representative. And if we think about it, of course, this is now how almost all professional history proceeds. You, you go to an archive, you, you read a bunch of letters by somebody, could be a civilian, could be a soldier, and then you make an argument that says this particular person who is in this particular place during the war isn't just an isolated nobody. In fact, this person is emblematic of a huge tendency in the war. Whitman, Whitman got there first. He was the first person I can find in the Civil War and civil writing to be doing that, to be saying, I'm going to tell these little stories and I'm going to make them typify large contours in the war. So now you point out, however, where he would not score well in a, a graduate seminar today for that historiographical technique is that he doesn't get a very representative sample of Union yes. soldiery. Yes, right. Uh, well, I mean, and this is often this is what we might say to a <laughs> to a graduate student yeah. too is uh, you know let's let's think about the evidence you've collected. I mean, the the problem. In Whitman's case, and I don't think anybody had, has pointed this out before, is that uh, his samplings tend to be, are, are almost exclusively soldiers of uh, either, are, either U.S.-born soldiers, soldiers perhaps of Irish descent, but if we, if we remember the, the figures of about foreigners fighting fighting in the, in the Civil War, uh, there's a good chance, and I, I talk about how I arrive at these numbers, but there's a good chance that Whitman met as, met as many as 22,000 foreigners fighting for the North and 1,000 fighting for the South. M- many of these would have been German. Uh, but there's almost no representation of them in, in the actual, what he finally publishes. You can find references to German soldiers in his notes, which have been published uh, in, in the edition of Whitman, the New York University Press edition, but, but they don't make it into the final product. And, he, and he, makes, he, he makes statements such as the body of United States soldiers is, is much more indigenous than most people think. Well, it turns out that's not, it's not true. And, uh, and so there is... There is I'm not trying to make Whitman sound like a saint. There is some fudging of the data, uh, and I tried to point that out as well. That if if he were in a 
character in a novel, somebody would point out that uh, Walt Whitman is really Walt Whiteman. Yeah. Uh, he, he only <laughs> well, interviews yes. white soldiers. Yes, I mean, his, Whitman's, Whitman's racial politics are very interesting. Uh, he was anti-slavery, but he was not anti-slavery because he was particularly convinced that uh, black people, people of African descent, are the equals of whites. He was anti-slavery because he felt that uh, the people he was really interested in were white labor, white wage labor. And if slavery went into the new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, white laborers would be at an unfair disadvantage in relation to the slaves, as, as they would. Uh, so that, that really is what, what got Whitman's hackles up. It wasn't that he was an abolitionist because he believed that slavery was necessarily a, a moral wrong. The, the getting back for a minute to the the, uh, the technique of using these individual soldiers he interviews, uh, it's really interesting because it is so taken for granted now. Yes, and and there are different techniques to make sure that you do get a representative sample. You know, James McPherson can read thirty thousand letters, and then you you you've got so many you can claim to have a a sense of the whole. Other people can use more selective sampling techniques. Uh, there have been one or two uh, sociologists who've written books about uh, the Civil War where they use techniques from their discipline to, to be able to claim these really do represent based on uh, the, the soldier's origins or color or occupation or age or uh, whatever, so you can statistically say this is a fair sampling. But you're still going to have outliers, and it seems to me, in any case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The thing about the thing about James McPherson, one of the things he says about Battle Cry of Freedom, is uh, the letters that he was most pleased to receive were letters that said, uh, "I loved reading your book. It was like reading a novel." Well, mm. I I think it would be wonderful to receive a letter like that. But on an, on the other hand, there's something a little unsettling about that because. Novels are are fictions, after all, and fiction. The word fiction means to shape or manipulate your material. And one of the things when you read, say, McPherson or any any great uh, Civil War historian, is what you come down to are are assemblings of quotations from <laughs> from different sources. So if he reads thirty thousand letters. That's fine, and he can tell you that, but you have to take his word for it that the ten quotations he has on a particular, in a particular section are, in fact, representative of what he found and, and in turn, of, of something larger. So there's still, there's still a, an extraordinary selectivity to it all that, you know, you have, even a reasonably skeptical person has to wonder about. The the idea of praising someone because their work is like a novel, you know, gets to one of the underlying uh, arguments as I saw it reading this book that that the aesthetics of these writers matter a great deal. They're not just uh, uh, that it's not inappropriate to to look at say Lincoln's writing uh, from an aesthetic point of view to look at it as literature, uh, and, and that that is. Not something separate and, and detached from its its wartime purpose and function, but uh, the two of them work together. Yes, is, is that a fair understanding? Yes, no, I'd say that is a fair understanding. I mean, what I what I tried to do 
my interest in military history is is actually older than my interest in in literary history uh, and what i what I have tried to make myself and also try to do in the book is i've tried to uh, write read and write as someone who is rigorously interested in the military historical details and who is also rigorously interested in the uh, techniques strategies, rhetorics, aesthetics of the writing. And what I find is often that people who write about Civil War writing as, as literature do so pretty well from the literature end, but really don't know the military history as well as they should. Mm-hmm. And what I find about people who write about it from the military history end, let's say, let's take the case of Sherman, for example, well, Sherman's thousand-page memoirs get read for their documentary evidence. If you want to write about Sherman in a biography, or if you want to write about Sherman in a campaign history or something, you go to you go to, among other sources, his memoirs, and you read those for information for your argument. Sherman himself, we know from the very beginning thought of himself as an artist and and labored quite self-consciously on those memoirs as a piece of writing. I don't see how one can read those memoirs fully without taking into account his sense of the aesthetic shaping of them every bit as much as their military historical historical value. And so what I've tried to do is to is to say to to literary people interested in the writing about civil war there's a lot more to think about in in terms of of real events in the case of Whitman let's say holding Whitman up to the historical record in the case of Chancellorsville which is the one I talk about and then conversely in the case of say someone like Lincoln or someone like Sherman uh or someone like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain Actually, those the last two would be the best examples because they were officers. These writings are not just transparent windows on the past. If anything, they are stained glass, and we have to take into account the ways that they those men were writing for literate audiences in in the late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries. In the case of uh, in the case of Sherman, uh, Chamberlain, and that's really the argument. That's how I'm trying to to sort of bridge that gap. Let me ask about uh, Sherman's memoirs. Most, uh, I think it's safe to say there's a consensus that uh, Ulysses Grant's memoirs are considered the the best writing of any major military figure of the war. Uh, why, given that, why did you choose Sherman rather than well, Grant? Well, that's good. Um, it's, the, it's interesting. The Library of America has uh, editions of both men's memoirs, and if you, if you look on Amazon.com, Grant always outsells Sherman, and uh, Gary Gallagher and I are teaching a Civil War class here at University of Virginia next term. We've chosen Grant, and so on and so on. The reason I chose Sherman is because so many people have written about Grant, and 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 very few, nobody really, after um, Edmund Wilson and Patriotic Gore, right. has written about Sherman. The big difference is that Grant would never. Well, there are two big differences. One is that Grant would never have written his memoirs if he hadn't 
become bankrupt and needed money. And Mark Twain hadn't come along and said, we can make some money if you write your memoirs. Grant steadily had resisted all appeals for him to write about the war up until this point. Suddenly he has no money. Suddenly he writes uh, his memoirs. He makes a lot of money. He dies, and he leaves Julia very well off. Sherman is very different. Sherman, from the beginning, is quite self-conscious about his powers as a writer. You, can, you, you get it in his letters to his brother John, written from... West Point, here's my course in rhetoric, here's how I did. You watch those letters germinate over the years, then he leaves and goes down into uh, the Seminole War in Florida, and you, you watch somebody really laboring to make his prose powerful. The, what a lot of people don't like about Sherman's memoirs, William Feely, McFeely is a good example, is that from when things start getting complicated for him in Louisiana just before the war when he has to resign uh, from, from the Louisiana Military Institute and come north, Sherman starts including lots and lots and lots of primary documents, which if you happen to be reading a, an edition which sets those documents in small type, <laughs> can be a really long haul. Uh, what I would say there is, is the thing to remember is Sherman's memoirs came first. They came in 1875. And when Sherman is writing, the government printing office has not, not started to put together uh, the official records. And so in many ways, Sherman is functioning as his own compiler. Also, the other thing about Sherman is that uh, he was a lawyer, before the war, and he had a lawyer's habit of mind. Here, here is my evidence. Uh, you know, the word documentary, or, well, although we think of it now as a genre of film, it originates in a legal context. I'm, I need this document to prop up a certain argument. And the other thing is that, that Grant uh, was incredibly popular. Uh, nowhere, nowhere near the lightning rod for controversy that that Sherman was and and, and the great the great one of the great ironies of Sherman's career is that this great master of of offensive warfare spent so much time on the defensive when it came to writing his memoirs so he's bringing in lots of evidence and lots of stuff and so lots of people would say you know, I don't, I don't want to I want I want to be reading the narrative I don't want to take time out to read a five page report that Sherman wrote after the Battle of Atlanta. Well, you, that's personal preference. You can't, you can't argue somebody out of it. But I, my take is, once you get the hang of how to read Sherman, he is a wonderful writer to, to work with. Well, I, I don't think there's any question about that. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk about another pre-Civil War lawyer who wrote a little bit, uh, Abraham Lincoln, with our guest, Stephen Cushman, author of Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Stephen Cushman about his new book, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. We talked a little bit about uh, Walt Whitman and the memoirs of William Sherman. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned uh, in, in our last segment that one reason you chose to write about uh, Sherman's memoirs instead of Grant's memoirs was that few people had written, uh, I think you said about Sherman, but of course you meant Sherman's memoirs because tons of people write about Sherman. Uh, but his memoirs do, as you know, go un- unremarked, uh, and you've, you've really looked into them. But now let me turn that on its head. Uh, you've also got a chapter here about Abraham Lincoln, and everybody has written about Abraham Lincoln. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and then you go, you, you double down, and you, you write about the Gettysburg Address. Uh, not some obscure piece of, of Lincoln literature. Uh, what gave you the nerve to say, I've yeah, got something right. to uh, say? Who would uh, have the temerity to do that? <laughs> um, well, there, there, uh, that's a uh, fair question. The, I, I will say one thing. I heard you in your introductory remarks uh, say that you're going to treat your listeners to David Reynolds uh, after yes. the holidays and his new selection of, of Lincoln's writings. And uh, actually, that selection of, 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 in that edition, he also includes uh, what people have written about Lincoln. And, and he did choose uh, a section of this chapter on Lincoln from, by me. So, so at least there's one person who thinks maybe something new got said. Uh, I, I was interested in well, a couple of there, things. There's about, two. I, I would agree. So, uh, oh, well, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> A couple of things about Lincoln interested me. One, the, the, this, the chapter has, has two parts. The first part is about Lincoln, Lincoln's meeting uh, in February of, of 1862 at the White House with 
Ralph Waldo Emerson, and who was who was to American letters at that time what Lincoln was to American politics. He was he was the leading man, and it was a a chance for me to make this connection between the literary world and the world of of statecraft of of politics. Uh, this meeting between the two men has been remarked, but it, again, it hasn't really ever been studied. And and when you when you look at what the exchange between them was, and then try to think it through, uh, I felt that I went I went into territory that that people haven't recovered before and and haven't really talked about before. So so that was a. Uh, that was an initial find that, that gave me some confidence. But your other question is completely fair. I, of all the things to talk about, why would somebody choose to talk about the Gettysburg Address and then compound the, the arrogance by talking about the second inaugural as well? What I, what I try to do, and there have been some wonderful books uh, about both speeches, what I try to do is, is really go to the heart of... Uh, this question of, of talking about this writing aesthetically, and in particular, in in the case of Lincoln, what interested me is first his mastery of of verbal musicianship, and and by that in particular, I mean what I talk about as sonority, the the sonorousness of of the way that. That his language is put together so that you, you you start right off with four score and seven years ago, which we take for granted as the way it's got to be. But when you start reading that that speech in in foreign translations, you realize that most people just say eighty seven years ago, and this whole four score thing is is Lincoln uh, deliberately writing a kind of prose that has about it many of the features of, of verse, of poetry, that has, that has repetitions of, of sound and various shadings of rhyme. The question then becomes, so what? And, and my answer, or the question that I try to pose and then, and then answer, is what is the uh, political purpose of eloquence? What is the political purpose of sonority? Uh, and and that that goes through a discussion of the of of the Gettysburg Address, and then in the case of the second inaugural, uh, you know there there is there is a very interesting moment in the second inaugural that, to my knowledge, people have never talked about fully. Uh, Ronald White in his in his book on the second inaugural does point out quite rightly that there's a there's a lot of rhyme in. Mm-hmm. In the second inaugural, there's that famous moment where Lincoln says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. And, and you hear, yes, pray and, and away rhyme. But what nobody has, has heard, apparently, is that what that really is, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, that's just a good, old-fashioned Hymn stanza, H-Y-M-N, hymn stanza, uh, or the structure of a hymn stanza that that Lincoln could have heard in any in any number of of churches that he spent any time in. So that this this moment, this very quotable moment, 
turns out to be him, him, hymnody in prose. And the question is, what, what is the President of the United States doing at his second inaugural address with this kind of moment, this kind of technique? Why do that? And, you know, my sense is that, uh, that he was working very, very hard at that particular moment to, and he does this in the Gettysburg Address, too, to uh, elevate the, the language, the rhetoric, above and beyond certain very difficult, particular, specific, gritty questions. And that, and that this, these kinds of moments have a, a real strategy behind them in, that, in, in his trying to, frankly, manipulate us, manipulate his, his hearers. Um, it's, it's, almost, it's almost sacrilegious to say that. It's almost blasphemous to say it. But, but it just so happens that at the same time, right now, as we speak, uh, I'm reading for the first time, for me, I have to confess, uh, a collection of Jefferson Davis's writing. And when you put the two side by side, it becomes whatever your partisanship might be it becomes quite clear that Lincoln is doing something very different from what Jefferson Davis ever tried to do. And well, so if, that, that just was a topic I felt there was more to say about. If, if we're talking about blasphemy, uh, you, you use the argument, it seems to me, that these words are, are music, uh, uh, hymnody, uh, and that music has its own uh, ability to convey emotional intensity, uh, to, to raise passions of listeners uh, without lyrical content. It may not direct exactly where their passions will go, but it, it gets people fired up. Yes. And th- you, then you, you observe that Adolf Hitler did the yes. same thing. I, I thought you might bring that up. Yep. That, yes, I'm I, 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 curious to hear you comment. Yes, well, I mean, again, uh, this is a, it's a charged moment. Uh, there are plenty of, of websites on the Internet where neo-Confederates, make no bones about com- comparing Lincoln to Hitler. Uh, that's not what I had in mind. I was, was m- for, for, for political reasons, w- what I was trying to talk about was in Gettysburg, uh, at that particular moment, uh, particularly towards the end of the address, Lincoln really has nothing solid to offer. We're still, we still have a long way to go in the war. We still have all of 1864 to go in the war. The North is going to become very war-weary. Lincoln himself is going to write in August of 1864 that he's pretty sure he's going to lose the election to McClellan. Uh, we've got all the ca- casualties of the Overland campaign coming when Grant comes east to take over. There's really nothing he can offer at that point other than emotional intensity. And if you think about Adolf Hitler in the 1930s when Germany is trying to climb out of the shambles it's in after World War I, there's a lot of moments where he doesn't have anything to offer either, and both figures are conjuring a kind of collective public faith in a, in a very vague future. Uh, let us highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. It's an amazing moment. 
shall not have died in vain. That's a, I mean, this is, I'm afraid, the English professor talking, but that's, a, that's called the future perfect tense, and, and that doesn't get used a lot. Uh, it's, when you start talking about what shall have happened, you are way away from this particular cemetery honoring these particular people at this particular moment. You are, you're, you're in the, of the realm of imagination and invention. And so my sense is that what the two have in common, despite all that they do not have in common, and there's a ton that they don't have in common, is this rhetorical mastery that, that basically got people to do things with words. And, and I, I was going to reassure our listeners that, that, that that's the only comparison you draw between that's the only comparison uh, Lincoln I draw. and yes, Hitler. No, they they no. use lit, literary techniques and yeah. verbal techniques. Well, and uh, I'm not to, the first to study Hitler's rhetoric. Uh, I mean, no, uh, by no uh, means. that's been done before. Now, we have only a couple minutes left, and... Uh, this will will have to persuade listeners to go out and get the book to find out what you have to say about uh, Ambrose Bierce and Joshua Chamberlain. I know some will be disappointed. We're, we're not going to have time to discuss them tonight. But I want to cut to the uh, conclusion yeah. uh, and ask you, why, why do we still read about the Civil War? Yes, well, uh, I mean, I think it depends on who we, who, who, who you mean by we. Uh, uh, I mean, I think you and I read about it because we got hooked on it somewhere around the centennial and mm-hmm. and have uh, continued to read about it ever since and study it. As you start to work downwards in age from us, you know, down to our students and down to younger people and in, in just in the public at large, uh, it's, it's not always clear why or if they will read about the Civil War. My argument is that as we get farther and farther from these events, here we are in the sesquicentennial. They'll be planning the bicentennial before you know it. As we get farther and farther from these events, younger readers, if, they're, if people are reading at all, younger readers are going to have to be brought into uh, an interest in this material, at least in part, and I think uh, to a very large extent, because of the power of the writing. Uh, as these as these events get farther away, simple curiosity or simple interest will will necessarily have to recede, and eventually, reading about the Civil War will be reading like about will be like reading about the Middle Ages uh, again, or be like reading about ancient Rome or ancient Greece. But the what what William Butler Yeats, the poet, called monuments of unaging intellect. Those things still stand out, and people still read them. And so it seems to me that that's the power of the aesthetic argument. At the end of the day, a lot of people wrote about the Civil War, but why do we read these people? We read these people in part because of the parts they played, but also because of how well they wrote. So just as we still read Herodotus and Thucydides, exactly right. Uh, yeah. we will continue to read Lincoln and Sherman We will Sherman continue to read Grant. Lincoln. I that we'll continue to read Grant and I hope Sherman and and some of these others. Well, I, I think uh, people will also do well to continue to read this book, Belligerent Muse: Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. Uh, 
its author, Stephen Cushman, has been our guest tonight. And listeners, you, you really will enjoy and be stimulated by this book. Uh, I hope you'll get a chance to read it, perhaps for the new year. And uh, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Well, uh, you're welcome, Jerry, and thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, and I wish all your listeners the best for the holiday season. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 